we are, in the words of Aristotle, rational animals, just like we're physical animals and just like we are, and here I get to the fourth element, we're relational animals. Number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Well, hello there. Today, my guest is Tal Ben-Shahar. He created the most popular course in Harvard's history, a course on positive psychology. He consults and lectures around the world to executives and multinational corporations, Fortune 500 companies, educational institutions, and the general public. He teaches about leadership, education, ethics, self-esteem, resilience, goal-setting, mindfulness, and, of course, happiness. His book, Happier, Learn the Secrets to Daily Joy and Lasting Fulfillment, is a book I recently finished reading. I love this book. And one of the things I love about Tal's work is that it's not just a bunch of theories. It's not one man's experience, good ideas, somebody thought that they would put between the covers of a book, but instead it's backed up by lots of research and science and personal experience and the experience of his students and clients. Again, I thought this book was amazing. In addition to Happier, Tall has also written a number of other books, which have been translated into 25 languages. Happier, I didn't say, was a New York Times best-selling book. He's also written two children's books, by the way, one about Helen Keller and one about Thomas Edison that are designed to teach children about happiness. We had a fantastic conversation about what Tall has learned when it comes to happiness and how we can be happier. The things, again, that science and research tell us. We talk about lessons he's learned from becoming a national champion on the squash court. We talk about what we can learn, how we learn and grow from trauma, from peak experiences. We talk about what the heck is going on in society with this increased incidence of anxiety, depression, suicide, the mechanics of how and why that's happening. We also talk about depression versus sadness. Tal shares something he calls the arrival fallacy, the when-then illusion, what it is and how to avoid it. He gives a model of happiness that I think is invaluable. He calls it the hamburger model, relating it to a personal experience eating hamburgers that makes it relatable and comprehensible. But to me, it's one of those examples of having a mental map of something can help you move somewhere that you want to be and live from that space. Tal talks about the five elements of happiness, what he has continued to learn in his years as a researcher, nearly uh, heading, I think, closer to his fourth decade. Tal talks about the first step in achieving true happiness. Tal talks about the best way to deal with procrastination. In the lightning round, I thought it was fantastic. I think you will too. 
what he has to say about writing. If you listen through to the end, writing in the creative process, it's solid. I am so grateful to Tal for coming on this show. I hope if you don't know about his work already, that this inspires you to check it out. You can visit him on the web at Tal Ben Shahar, spelled just like it sounds, T-A-L-B-E-N-S-H-A-H-A-R. You can also check out his Happiness Studies Academy, where you can get a certificate in Happiness Studies, which is pretty cool. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Tal Ben Shahar. Tal, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Tal, will you tell me, please, what's life about? Life is about happiness, which is what I've, been ded- I've dedicated you know, the last three decades of my life to, major part of my life, uh, though it is about happiness understood not as just pleasure and you know having a good time. It's about happiness as a sense of meaning and purpose. It's about happiness as a contribution. It's about happiness as cultivating relationships. It's as happiness in terms of enjoying the full gamut of human emotions. So happiness broadly defined, that is what life is about. Wow. I love that. And, and your book, Happier, now you've written a lot. And as you said, you know, decades of studying and teaching this, and in fact, have uh, created and delivered the most popular course at Harvard <laughs> around this subject. Congratulations on that. I want to go back, though, a little ways and ask you if you will share with me a little bit about squash. <laughs> You know, l- l- let me start um, in the middle, actually. So uh, I started playing squash at 11, but I remember when I was 16 years old or so, waking up one morning and thinking, what am I going to do when I longer, no longer play squash? What is going to be the purpose of, of my life? How am I going to find uh, another passion? Now, I'm bringing this up to, in order to to convey to you the, the importance that squash had for me, the, the centrality of playing squash in my life. That was my life, certainly throughout my teen years and actually into my 20s. You know, I wanted to be, I'd always dreamed about being a professional athlete. At, at the age of 11, you know, after playing uh, so many sports, including tennis, table tennis, running, uh, finally discovering that my real passion is squash. So it was a, a central part for me. And he taught me a lot of, a lot of what I know today and got me thinking uh, about a lot of what I'm thinking about today. So, you know, there's the book, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. So, you know, I feel, you know, sometimes that all I needed to know I learned on the squash court. So it was, was a part of my life. I no longer play squash, unfortunately, due to injuries. I just want to jump in and ask how, I mean, I certainly don't encourage my kids to play squash. To me, it's a bit of an exotic sport. Maybe lacrosse is about as exotic as as it gets, Mm -hmm. but especially here in the United States, you know, soccer, baseball, maybe football. I recognize that you're not talking about the United States, but nevertheless, how did did you find your way to squash? My family at that time, so I was born and raised in Israel. And then at the age of nine, we moved to South Africa. And in South Africa, being in the the British Commonwealth, Squash is uh, not a huge sport, you know, it's not cricket or rugby, but, but, but people play squash. And I remember going with, to, to the squash courts for the first time with my best friend, Jonathan, and his dad, and we started playing, and it was love at first sight. You know, and I played it, and then I went a couple of more times with, with Jonathan and, you know, his dad, dad Desmond, 
told me that, you know, I see you really like squash. And I said, yeah, I love it. And he said, well, if you want to be a top player, you have to play three hours a day. And I took that as gospel. As, and I said, three hours a day? Okay, it's going to be three hours a day. And I started within a, a few months practicing for three hours a day. At 11 years old. Yeah. And for the next decade or so, you know, I, I, I got injured when I was in my very early 20s and, and unfortunately had to give up my squash. But for the next 10 years, you know, I did three hours a day and later more when I did turn professional. Wow. So you say that, you know, in the same way Robert Fulgham tells us everything he needs to know, he learned in kindergarten. Uh, what did you, I mean, what did you learn from it? And, and then I definitely want to hear, you know, you were talking already about looking to life after squash. And yeah. Clearly, you know, there's something to share there, but what did you learn from it? Yeah, so, so I learned many things. The first thing I learned about it was the importance of hard work. You know, today, um, there's the work on, you may have come across on the 10,000 hours, you know, so uh, Anders Ericsson's work that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in, uh, in his books. So, you know, I learned about the, the value, the importance of, of putting in the time, putting in the hours. You know, unfortunately, there, there are no shortcuts to becoming an expert. And whether it's an expert in uh, computer programming or on the squat, you know, as a squash player or tennis or, uh, p- or playing the piano or, or being a manager. There are no real shortcuts. Yes, you can make it more likely that you'll make it, but you have to put in the hours. So that's, I think, the most important lesson that, that, that I learned, putting in the time. Second, the importance of failure. You know, there is no athlete who, you know, and, and you could be the greatest of all time, you know, the likes of, you know, beat Serena Williams or uh, Michael Jordan, who hasn't lost and continues to lose. You know, Michael Jordan has a beautiful, it's actually a Nike commercial where he talks about, it goes something like this, you know, I've, I've missed uh, three, whatever, you know, I've lost over 300 games. I've missed the winning shot in 20-something times. I have failed time and time again, and that is why I succeed. You know, so this idea of you know, that I've, I've put it into a soundbite that I teach my children, my, my students, my, my clients, and myself, learn to fail or fail to learn. Learn to fail or fail to learn. That has become a mantra for me, and, and, and I learned it on the squash court. You know, and, and many other things such as, you know, teamwork, working together uh, with people, with disagreements and conflicts. And I, later when I, when I went, well, I was on the Israeli national team, you know, so I learned to be on a team. At Harvard, I played on the Harvard team. So many important lessons there, all of which have stood me in, in, in good stead in whatever I did, you know, what I'm doing today as, as, as a teacher, as a collaborator, as, a, as, as part of an organization. And, I, and, and even to this day, you know, so I have three kids you know, who are you know, 15, uh, 12, and 10 years old. I rarely, if ever, ask them about how they're doing in school. You know, if there's a problem in school, I'm sure their teacher will, will call me up and, and, and they have done so at times. <laughs> but I always do ask them about how sports is going, how they're athletic, you know, how basketball is going, how dance is going, you know, how, how football is going. Uh, because I think there is so much value to playing sports, especially in today's world when, when so many of us lead a sedentary lifestyle, when, when, when social interactions are not as commonplace as they were before with yeah. the emergence of social media. Yeah. If my kids just go outside, I'm happy. Yeah, no, exactly. Ex- exactly right. Because they're, they're doing something which is, which is healthy, healthy physically and healthy psychologically. 
Yeah. So you're 11 years old. You're well on your way to this 10,000 hours <laughs> and you win your first national championship <laughs> at 16. Right. Yes. Yeah. So at, at 14, we returned to Israel after our stint in South Africa. And two years later, you know, I, I, I win the Israeli national championships, which has been on my radar, you know, my, my as I call my radar, dream radar. I love that. <laughs> or um, Registered trademark. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, for a few years and, 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 and I win it. My dream come true. And, and I must say that during the five years, you know, when I look back on my childhood, and again, not only looking back also as I was living it, I wasn't a happy child. I was an anxious child. I was a very serious child. I was a hard worker, whether it's in school, whether it's on the court. But I was not happy. You know, I was not jovial. But, but I always told myself, that's okay. I'm not happy now. I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. Uh, but when I win the championship, then I'll be happy. You know, it was, it was always on, on, on my mind and heart. Okay, you know, you, you give a present benefit for the, for the purpose of, of future benefits. You know, you give up present happiness for the purpose of future happiness. And I was certain of the fact that once I win the national champion, then I'll be happy. And you know what? I was right. After winning the Israeli national champion, it was probably the happiest or one of the, certainly at that time, it was one of the, uh, was the happiest day of my life. And a dream came true. And then uh, a few hours go by after I celebrate with my family and friends. And, you know, I remember this was, must've been 2 a.m. after we, I came home and from the celebrations and I'm sitting on my bed, uh, you know, just savoring and reveling in, 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 in my great feet. And suddenly out of nowhere, the exact same anxiety that I'd experienced essentially since I could remember myself comes back after I fulfilled my dream after, you know, I, I, I put a check mark next to my, my greatest goal, dream, accomplishment. And I'm feeling the as I felt before, only worse now, because at least before that, I, I thought, well, once I get there, then I'll be happy. But I got there, at least, you know, what meant, what, what there was for me. And now I go back to where I was before and I was distraught. And, you know, the tears of, of joy and happiness that I shed just hours earlier, you know, after that final point now turned into tears of, of sorrow and more than anything of helplessness. I remember, you know, looking up and just saying, you know, God help me. I mean, what, what, what do I need to do to be, to be happy or, or, or even to lower the bar, not to be miserable? I, I didn't have an answer then. You know, this is uh, what eventually got me to studying happiness, um, that, that, that very experience. Wow, that, that's amazing. I mean, thank you for, for sharing that. And, and for me, it, it just confirms this theory of we teach what we need to learn, <laughs> right? Oh, you, Absolutely. Then your life is the, you're the subject, your life is the experiment, you're, you're searching for this. And, and I love what you say in, in your book, Happier, about I became obsessed with the answer to a single question, how can I find lasting happiness? And then you say, I sought answers to the following questions. How can a person be both successful and happy? How can happiness and ambition be reconciled? Is it possible to defy the maximum of no pain, no gain? And part of what I love about that is that, first of all, questions. This was something that wasn't obvious to me. I didn't learn until just a few years ago about the power of a single question to change the entire trajectory of a life. And, and so here you are at an early age, and in some ways, as painful as that was and as crappy as that must have been, what a gift to learn that 
in your teens instead of being on the treadmill of someday in your 40s, 50s, you know, something like that. Yeah, you know, I was fortunate to have a very powerful emotional experience at, at that point because it was really, you know, the culmination of, again, of, of five years, which, you know, for a 16-year-old, that's, you know, almost a third of my life. Five years of very intense preparation for this moment and, you know, building and building and building. And then in just, you know, literally a second, this whole building is being demolished. So it was a very powerful experience for me. And, and as we know, and as you know, I know today also from, from the research, it's powerful emotional experiences that, that shift us. That now, by the way, they can shift us in, in a positive or a negative direction. So, you know, you think about the most powerful uh, emotional experiences would be traumas. Now, there can be post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of trauma. And there can be also much less talked about, but post-traumatic growth as a result of trauma. But regardless, change happens as a result of a traumatic experience. And by the way, traumatic a trauma doesn't only need to be a negative experience. So we can have a peak experience that shifts, shifts us. And it makes sense if we think about our language. I mean, look at the word. We think about emotion. Emotion. Emotion is about moving us to or from a certain, a certain place. And if it's a very powerful emotion, then it's a very powerful movement that takes place. It's an earthquake on the individual level. And that's what happened to me at 16. And by the way, that in, in and of itself wasn't enough. So it was then that I started asking these questions, but the answer that came to mind at that point was, uh, okay, it's because it's just the Israeli national championships. And you know, Israel is a small country and you know, how many players are there in Israel? I need to be the world champion. That's logical. Uh, exactly. That, that, is, that is logical. And, you know, certainly for a 16-year-old who's inexperienced with life. So I continued on that path. And the only thing that changed was that in terms, in, instead of my goal being to be the national champion, it was to be the world champion. And I left Israel, went to, uh, you know, the center of world squash, which is London, England. You know, I joined a club in Ealing Broadway, which where uh, John Shere Khan, the Pakistani world champion, played and, and became his training partner and started to train like him. So it was no longer three hours a day, it was six hours a day. And, and I did climb up the world rankings, uh, you know, for, for juniors, for, 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 for seniors, for adults. And I really thought that that would be the answer. Unfortunately, I then, I, I, I did get injured and, and this was, I was devastated as a result of that. You know, I would have to give up my, my, my squash career. And remember, at the age of 16, thinking, what am I going to do when I no longer had squash? So it was a, you know, a crisis. So I replaced squash with uh, academic success and you know, applied to the top universities in, uh, in the U.S., it ended up going to, to Harvard and then decided to be the best, uh, the best student there. And, and worked hard and studied hard and continued to struggle and suffer. And suddenly it dawned on me, and this was, you know, this was my sophomore, sophomore year, my second year at Harvard. I was a computer science major then. And I suddenly caught myself and I said, you know, I'm in this most amazing place with incredible professors, amazing classmates, incredible food in the dining hall day in and day out, and miserable. And then I said to myself, something's wrong with this equation. And that, that is coupled with a very strong emotional experience that I had at 16. And that's an, that experience when I was a, a sophomore, that led me to uh, change focus. And instead of studying computer science that very day, 
I changed my major to philosophy and psychology. Wow. So I'm reminded of this saying that I, I forget, you know, like once is a random occurrence, twice is a coincidence. Three times you're starting to see a trend and yet you're seeing, you're making a, a trajectory change on the second awareness. So that's amazing. And, and we're, we're blessed <laughs> because of it. And yet I think of those who run into adversity and end their lives or shut down or give up or enter a state of learned helplessness or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. this is one thing I'm curious to ask you about is like, what is going on? when depression rates, as you quote in your book, and maybe they've changed since the few years it's been published, but you talk about, you know, that the onset of depression, the diagnosis of depression has moved from 29 to 14, basically, and the incidence, the percentage, you know, of those diagnosed has gone up dramatically. Like, I mean, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, no, not good things, to, to, to put it mildly. So, so, so this is what's happening. You know, more and more people are suffering today with anxiety, depression. I'll share with you just one more recent data. So this is research by, by Gene Twenge, who's a professor at Sandy, University of San Diego. And here is what she, what she shows. So every five years or so, researchers look at the mental health, measure the mental health levels of teens in the, in the United States. Every five years, they, they know that, you know, up 1%, down 1%, but essentially basically quite stable. This, the, um, the, the most recent findings is as follows. Depression rates have gone up by over 30% compared to five years ago. Suicide rates among teens has gone up by more than 30% over the past five years. Now, we had never seen anything like it. And, and, and it, it's, the trends are continuing in this, in this direction. This is not just for teens, adults as well. Suicide rates around the world are, are going up. And the question is why? And, you know, you mentioned the, word, the, the, the phrase learned helplessness. And I think that in many ways that is at the, at, at the center of what, it, what is happening. Because here is what, what, what's going on. Let, let, let me give you an, an extreme example. Let's look at the most successful people in our society or who, the, the ones we deem, of we, we have crowned as the most successful. The, the stars, the superstars, in fact, the, 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 you know, the rock stars, the movie stars. And the question that we need to ask is, why do we see such high rates of alcoholism, drug addiction, and suicide in that population? And here's part of the answer. This, this is how it works. So imagine these superstars today as younger adults or as kids. They're unhappy as kids, as, as, as many kids are, as teen, many teenagers are, but they tell themselves, I'm unhappy now, but when I make it, then I'll be happy. When I become a you know, when I succeed in, in Hollywood or when I succeed in my sports or when, uh, you know, I think Michael Phelps or when I succeed in, in business and become very wealthy, when I succeed, then I'll be happy. So they are not happy. They're miserable. They're anxious. They're depressed, perhaps, but they have hope that when they make it, then they'll be happy. And then they do make it. And, you know, they make it when they're, you know, 20 or they make it when they're 30, but they make it big. And initially, I mean, think rock stars, movie stars, they have it all. They're very wealthy. They can buy anything that they want. They're famous. They're admired. They are revered by uh, millions of people. They can have basically any man or woman they want. You know, they're, they're, they've fulfilled, you know, 99% of the population's dreams. They've made it and they're happy. 
but then maybe not a few hours go by, but a few months go by, and suddenly they realize that even though they've made it there, there is no there there. They go back to where they were before, unhappy, maybe anxious, maybe depressed, despite all their success, only this time with a difference. So in the past, they were sustained by, by hope. It was an illusion, but it was still hope that when they make it, they'll be happy. Today, they're devoid of that illusion. They're devoid of that hope, and they're miserable without hope. And the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. You know, so sadness is something that we experience all of us, you know, 10 times a day, maybe we're, you know, we're sad to see something, you know, in the news, or we're sad because we had, you know, a conversation with someone who told us something. We're sad. That's okay. That's natural. We can deal with it. Sadness becomes depression when there is no hope in, in the equation. This is where many very, very successful people end up. Sadness without hope, hence depression. Now, they get to a point where they realize that reality can't provide them with the happiness that they have been seeking their entire lives. So they look for the answer, not in reality, because reality, reality hasn't helped, outside of reality. Now, what's, what's outside of reality? Drugs, alcohol, and the ultimate exit from reality, which is, of course, suicide. Yeah, or perhaps God. Maybe the Beatles going to India. Well, that's the thing. So, you know, God is, you know, maybe the, the most important role that God plays, whether it's, you know, the real God, if one believes, or even an illusory God, if one doesn't believe, is that God gives hope, whether it's hope on this, in this world or hope in the afterlife. But hope is the missing element for many people's lives. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about, you know, I think maybe is most conspicuous in what you're saying, the most what our society recognizes and rewards or considers successful to make that point. But I think to some degree, and maybe this is what you're saying, or maybe I'm extrapolating or misinterpreting, but for many people where the mechanism of their experience is essentially the same, but for them, it might not be winning a Grammy or filling stadiums. It's paying off the mortgage or, you know, having the family or, you know, whatever, getting a certain job or title. And then all of a sudden they're like, really, this is it? Exactly. Exactly. You know, this is what I've called, you know, and I talk about this in, in my book, Happier. This is what I've called the arrival fallacy. It's the, the belief that when you arrive at, at, a, at a certain point, and again, it could be a Grammy, but it could also be paying off the mortgage. It could also be when I am uh, married or have a family. These are also arrivals that when I make it, then I'll be happy. It's the when-then process. It's an illusion. It's a fallacy. We need to find, look for happiness elsewhere. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not against having goals, being ambitious. I'm not against whether it's a goal of a Grammy or a goal of having a family. I think these are wonderful goals to have. The point is that we need, we need to understand that happiness doesn't reside in arriving, in achieving, in outcomes. It resides in the present moment. And that's the challenge. Where do we find that? Yeah. And as I hear that, and I love the term when then, I love that simplistic thing, you know, in the arrival fallacy to give a name to that, because I think naming something, having a concept or an awareness of it can be liberating in and of itself or give, you know, definition to an experience or whatever. But what I love about that is that it, it, it is liberating. And at the same time, there's a part of me that's like, oh man, really? Like life is a process. 
it's, it's moment, moment, moment. And yeah, there's things, there's boxes I can check, you know, milestones I can cross. And on the one hand that realizing none of those in and of themselves will ever bring lasting fulfillment or satisfaction is kind of crappy. But then from another point of view, it's like, man, that is so freeing. (laughs) Exactly. It's both. It's both. Yeah. So it is freeing to think that, okay, I don't need to put all my stakes in the next achievement, in overcoming, you know, that, that, that next hill, the next mountain. At the same time, what's the alternative? Because this is the model that we are fed from, yeah. from a very young age. I mean, you know, I, I ask parents this and I say to them, um, you know, do you really believe that the path to happiness does not go through success? Because if you really believe that, then you would stop pushing your children to get into a top school or get great grades. But most parents don't actually believe that. They actually do think that if their child gets into a top university or if their child does become very wealthy or if they, their child does succeed on all you know, the parameters, fame, fame, money or whatever it is, then their child will be happy. They actually, whether it's explicitly, but even more often implicitly, that's how they raise their children with this model in mind. That model is wrong. It's not a little wrong. It's very wrong. Yeah. Well, and the way that you break this down in this book, again, and I shared this this morning, I, ho- I host a mindfulness group here in Salt Lake City. And so I had about 20 people in a room this morning and I, I opened your book and I recreated that two by two matrix to help people just, you know, I invited them to question, where do you spend most of your time? And what might be possible for you if you perhaps chose a different quadrant to spend time in? And, and obviously, this is audio, so people you know, are listening to this. But I wonder if you'd be willing to recreate that for people listening to help them maybe gain an understanding of something that's possible for them that they're not currently experiencing. Right. So, so let me uh, share just in a few words how that model that, that you're referring to uh, came into being. So this is a happiness model but I also call it the hamburger model. And the reason is because I actually came up with this model while having a hamburger. (laughs) Out of respect for uh, the uh, the initiator or the creator of this model. And and specifically, I was was training for a squash tournament. And when when I was training for a tournament, I was eating only healthy foods. I was eating lean meat and and fish and, of course, fruits and vegetables. But I, I said to myself that, once the tournament is over, I'll reward myself and indulge in an unhealthy meal, but a good meal and eat a, a few hamburgers. And, you know, as, as a professional athlete training at that time, six hours a day, I could eat. So uh, the tournament was over and, and, and I decided to indulge myself, reward myself with a, with a visit to the hamburger joint. I went and bought four hamburgers put it on my plastic plate, went to the table, I was by myself because, you know, this was my moment and was about to open my mouth and eat the first of four hamburgers and I stopped. And the reason I stopped was because I suddenly thought to myself, you know, maybe I shouldn't have this hamburger because I've been feeling so, so strong. I've been feeling really good, healthy over the past few months. Maybe I shouldn't ruin it with, a, with an unhealthy burger. And then I thought, okay, so this would be one option. What if I had another type of hamburger? What if I had a hamburger that didn't taste as, you know, as wasn't as delicious as this hamburger that I was about to have because this was my favorite hamburger joint, but was healthy. You know, a vegetarian burger maybe or or 
you know, some healthy grass-fed hamburger or whatever it is. And I said, but there's another hamburger option, which is worse than the one I'm having. Imagine if I had a hamburger which was unhealthy and tasted horribly. So, the, the, you know, so far I had three hamburger archetypes. The one I was about to have, which was delicious, but I knew was not good for me, was not healthy. Uh, one which was healthy, but which was not tasty. And then a third one, which was not tasty and not healthy. And then I thought, but what if I had it all? What if I had the fourth hamburger archetype, which is tasty as the one I was about to have and healthy? That would be the ideal. And I thought to myself, wow, this is what happiness would be all about. Happiness would be about tasty and healthy. And then I took it to, uh, extended this to other experiences. And I thought the hamburger that I was about to have, tasty but unhealthy, is about having a present positive experience, but about paying a price in the future. Because I wouldn't feel great later on, you know, a few hours later or even days later if I continue to eat tasty but unhealthy food. So present, great, future, not so great. If I think about just eating healthy food, but which is not tasty, future is great, but present, not so great. The worst hamburger, not healthy and not tasty, is present is terrible, future is terrible. But then the ideal happiness hamburger, as I've come to call it, is great for the future and great for the present. How can we find more such experiences, not just in a hamburger joint? How can we find it in a relationship? For example, a relationship where we enjoy spending time together, we have pleasure as we experience it, and we're building something meaningful for the future together, or work, where overall I enjoy going to work, I like the day-to-day, and I'm doing something which is meaningful. I'm building something for my future that is happy workplace. And the question is not how I can spend 24-7 in this happy place, present and future, go hand in hand, but how can I spend more of my time in that quadrant of the happy, healthy, and tasty hamburger? I love that. And it it parallels, you know, something you say a little earlier in the book about as well-meaning as the question, am I happy, might be. It's often actually not that useful where instead asking, how can I be happier, right? How can I spend more time in that quadrant where I have both pleasure and meaning? Yes, exactly. You know, this is an important distinction because many people ask me, so Tal, uh, are you happy? Okay, so you've been in this business for, you know, three decades almost. Are Are you finally happy? Because remember, I got into it because I was unhappy. And my answer to that question is that I don't really know how to answer this question. Why? Because I don't think there is a point before which you are unhappy, after which you are happy. In other words, it's not binary, zero, one. Rather, happiness resides on a continuum. And today, I'm certainly happier than I was uh, 30 years ago, but I certainly hope that five or 10 years from now, I'm happier than I am today. In other words, it's not about reaching a, a final destination, a finite point, but rather it's about a journey, a lifelong journey, a journey that ends when life ends. Yeah. And that for me is another one of those that is simultaneously liberating and exasperating, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You know, you're, you're right because very often, and, and you know, th- this is also part of our Western culture, we've been fed an unhealthy and unhealthy because it's unrealistic ideal, which is that, you know, you'll see the light, you, you'll find the answer. There isn't that moment where we have the answer. 
um, where we find the, the thing that we need to do in order to live happily ever after. You know, and this is where movies are very often misleading because what do we see in movies? You know, there is a struggle for the 90 minutes. And again, you can have a lifetime, of course, in that 90 minutes or a few years in those 90 minutes, there is real struggle. And then towards the end, there is resolution. And, you know, and, and the protagonists meet and they, and, they, and they kiss and the screen goes down. And of course, what is the assumption? They live happily ever after. Wrong assumption. You know, there is no uh, happily ever after. There are struggles after. The struggles actually begin after the screen goes down. That's when the real uh, hard work has to has to be put in. Not when you you know you tie the knot if you're thinking about a romantic relationship, or when you find your ideal job when you're thinking about the professional realm. You, you need to start working hard when you find your dream job. You need to start working hard when you're together with your dream partner. Yeah. No, I've certainly experienced that in my life and whether it was and mostly in a professional realm, it's easier to see, but also in relationships, you know, I thought when I end this marriage, which I did well, and in that marriage, you know, I thought I'll buy a Ferrari. It'll be a symbolic, you know, act that will reignite the passion and adventure. It's a two seater. We'll just leave the kids behind and, you know, mm-hmm. well, that didn't do it. You know, ending that marriage didn't do it. Starting a new marriage is a con- component you know, for sure. But starting to see, and it worked many times, how often what I thought was a finish line is really just a starting line. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. What you thought was a finish line is actually a starting line. Yeah, again, again and again. And in the book, you, you define happiness. And you, it, it, there's a sentence here where you, you say, the over, so you define happiness as the overall experience of pleasure and meaning. Right. You still feel that's, that's pretty accurate? Yes, and. So to begin with the yes, you know, the, the pleasure and meaning definition came out of the hamburger or happiness model. Pleasure is what I'm experiencing right now at the moment. Meaning is about, you know, building something important, significant for, for the future. So I still see it as a valuable definition of happiness. Now, here, here comes the end. Over the, the past few years, I've, I've expanded on this, whereas today I see happiness as, as more complex than just combining meaning and pleasure. Specifically, I see happiness as comprising five elements. And the five elements are first, spiritual well-being. So spiritual well-being can, of course, be religion, and it is for many. Uh, but spirituality can also come from other areas, specifically from finding meaning in one's life. And, you know, a, an investment banker who finds meaning in her life is more spiritual than a monk who doesn't find meaning in, in his vocation. Yeah. And, and, and in that too, because this is one thing I, th- I think a lot about, and I'm so excited to hear you say five, because I've looked at this and put spirituality at the center as well. And for me, also a sense of connection. Very much so. Now, a sense of connection, broadly defined meaning. Um, The second element of spirituality, so the one element is a sense of meaning and purpose in life. The second element is exactly connection. And it's connection, you know, you you were talking about running a mindfulness group. It's being present. It's being mindful. Because if I'm connected to this, really connected to this moment, if I, you know, am, am engaged in this conversation, if I'm really connected to the person sitting across the table from me, or if I'm connected to nature as I, as, as I take a walk outside, that's a spiritual experience. 
So that's the second very important element of uh, spirituality. So it's spiritual well-being is the first component. The second component is physical well-being. You know, physical well-being is, is important. You know, what, what we eat, nutrition, is very important for happiness, of course, for, for physical health. Whether, whether or not we exercise is very important for happiness. You know, regular physical exercise, and by the way, that can be walking regularly out in nature, or it can be being on your treadmill, or it can be, uh, or it can be, you know, swimming. Or, or best form of exercise is actually dance, because you have, there you have another element of usually you have another element of happiness, which is being with other people. Yeah, and I love that you brought that up because I don't remember you mentioning that you dance in Happier, but I did come across that online. What kind of what kind of dance do you do? Yeah, so one of the dances that I do is Zumba. And then just my wife and I, we just go dancing. We, you know, we love going to, to clubs, you know, whether it's with, you know, 20-year-olds where we feel completely out of place or, <laughs> you know, dancers our age, but, but we love to dance. And, you know, also fortunately, my wife was, was a dancer for, for many years. And my daughter today dances. That, that's her uh, sport or activity or, or passion. So I, we, do a, we have a lot of dance in our house. That's great. And and number, and I have a friend, by the way, who asked me a question once I just love. He said, what if you were so happy that all that was left was just to dance? Mm, yeah. <laughs> that is really beautiful. It's beautiful. And you know, dance is, is, is a cause and an effect because when we are happy, we're more likely to dance. That's all that's left is to dance. I love that. But also if we're not that happy and we want to become happier, dance is a good investment. Yeah, that's a cool way to phrase that. That's a cause and an effect. Yeah. So, so you know, under physical well-being, in addition to exercise and nutrition, you also have sleep. You know, sleep is, is unfortunately, by many people, under underrated for both mental and physical health. There is a wonderful book by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep, where he goes through the, 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 the research, the data on sleep. It's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. I listened to his interview with Joe Rogan. Hmm. There were seriously like every 30 seconds of the first 45 minutes of that conversation. It's like, that, that was amazing. I had no idea. <laughs> you know, and it, it did change the way I, I approach my sleep habits. Yeah. Good, good. Because, so it, it's, it's, it's very important for, for psychological well-being and of course for physical well-being. So, you know, so we have spiritual well-being, physical well-being. Then we have intellectual well-being. Do you, do you know, this is, this is really which I find very interesting. So just came out recently showing that curiosity is actually associated with longevity, meaning people, you know, we we're talking about the importance of questions. People who ask questions, who, who, who want to learn, who are lifelong learners, add years to their life. So it's not just that they enjoy their life more, which, you know, curiosity, of course, contributes to the, to the quality of our life. It also contributes to the quantity of our lives. Interesting. Um, so, and this is part of intellectual well-being, learning, deeply learning, engaging with the text or engaging with nature or with other people, but really learning is, is a very important part of, of well-being. You know, we are, we are uh, in the words of uh, Aristotle, rational animals, just like we're physical animals and just like we are, and here I get to the fourth element, we're relational animals, number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. By the way, it's also, no big surprise, number one predictor of physical health, relationships. And interestingly, in the research, and this is research done in, in many places around the world, the kind of relationships we have doesn't matter that much, but 
that we have relationships matters a great deal. And not just any relationship, meaning intimate relationships. So an intimate relationship can be, of course, with our romantic partner, but intimate relationships can also uh, be part of, of you know, our, our family relationships, or we could have very close friends, you know, BFFs, best friends forever, that we're very close to and intimate with. Or at work, you know, there are people who find their or who fill their uh, relational quota in, in the workplace because uh, they're pa- so passionate about similar things and, 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 th- and they love spending time at work. So relationships are, are key. And, and by the way, related to relationships is giving, contributing. One of the best ways to increase levels of happiness is, is to give. And whether it's to give to, to charity or to, or to spend your time with people who need help or simply to be kind, that is the form of giving. And what I love about what you're sharing here is, again, that, you know, you're sharing this from the perspective, not only of your experience and your own observation, but as a researcher and someone with a PhD and, you know, who's aware of probably has personal relationships with the people that actually did this, Mm -hmm. you know, these studies and so forth. And anybody can, that's one of the, I think the blessings maybe and the curses of our world today is anybody can pick up a megaphone in the form of Twitter or start a blog or a podcast or whatever. But this is not just some guy's ideas or anecdotes about what leads to happiness, right? And, and I just want to acknowledge that here. Yeah, well, th- thank you for bringing that up. Because, you know, w- when people ask me, so, Tal, how did you create that class at Harvard? Or in general, how do you create your, create your lectures or write your books? And it's always about three things. The first thing is research. That's the foundation. I do not teach, you know... So, you know, I may have the most amazing experience in a, in, in, in a workshop or, you know, may have read something which, which I find very interesting, but if there's no research behind it, I won't teach it. You know, I may use it. No, I, I often would use it in my life. You know, I would experiment with it, but I would never teach it. But first and foremost, I'm an academic. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a professor. This is what I do. I rely on research. The second criteria that I use is that that research has to be relevant relevant to people's lives, applicable, so that they can take it and apply it in their personal lives or in professional lives, in their relationships, in their business. Uh, It has to be relevant. And the third criteria for what I include or don't include, I must use it myself, experiment with it myself. In other words, I have to make it personal. And I really believe in that third element, as I do in the first two. Uh, Carl Rogers, the the famed uh, North American psychologist, said, I think it was back in the 1950s, he said, what is most personal is most general. So um, it has to rely on research. It has to be relevant, applicable. So it's not just you know, theoretical uh, knowledge. And, and third, I, I must try it. So I, I have to walk the talk. You know, if I teach meditation, I would first teach about the research on meditation. You know, obviously, it's very relevant because we know the benefits thereof. And third, I meditate daily. I would not teach it if I wasn't doing it. That, that's powerful. That's powerful come from in, in sharing all this. And, and I know with that, I, I, I detoured us a little from the five. So maybe we could go back to this fifth. So we element. have spiritual well-being. We have physical well-being. We have intellectual well-being. We have relational well-being in the final one is emotional well-being. And emotional well-being is about two things. First of all, it's about uh, cultivating more pleasurable emotions. It's about cultivating gratitude. It's about cultivating joy. It's about cultivating excitement and so on. And 
it's also about learning to deal with painful emotions. You know, painful emotions uh, must have a place of importance, an honorable place in the field of happiness studies, because painful emotions are an inevitable part of every life. And if we reject them, they only intensify. So the question is, what do we do when we feel anxiety, when we feel sadness, when we feel envy, when we feel anger? These are natural human emotions and learning to deal with them, to, first of all, to embrace them and then to, to deal with them is a very important part of a happy life. In fact, more and more as, as I look into this field, I think that the first step towards finding true happiness is, is, is truly embracing unhappiness. The first step of finding true happiness is truly embracing unhappiness. No, that, that's so powerful. And, and this is something I've seen in my years as a coach is that many people seem to create intense suffering for themselves by making themselves wrong for feeling whatever they're feeling. And when we can feel that, embrace, accept, whatever, but as long as we deny that, reject it, you know, there's no, in my experience, no real growth or transformation that's possible. Yes. And there is also much more pain and unhappiness because, you know, the, you know there's much talk in, um, well, started in, in Tibetan Buddhist thought today. There is also a lot of research on it in, in, in Western academic institutions about two levels of suffering. The first level of suffering is, you know, inevitable. It's, 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 it's just because we're alive. You know, the Buddha started off his, uh, you know, you know, four truths. The first truth is the truth of suffering. And it is part of every life. So that's the first inevitable level. The second level of suffering is when I reject the fact that there is suffering and say to myself, there shouldn't be suffering. I shouldn't suffer. And then there is additional pain. It's like, uh, you know, let's say I feel uh, envy towards a good friend. And again, envy is a natural human emotion. We all, we all experience it at time. And I experience envy and that's suffering. But then what if I say to myself, Tal, you shouldn't be feeling suffering. You're a bad person for experiencing suffering towards your best friend, uh, no less. That second level of suffering, which is unnecessary. It simply magnifies the natural experience in the wrong direction. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly see that in my own life and sometimes <laughs> still do for sure. Well, let, me, let me transition our conversation. Before I do though, I, I just want to get your view about one one thing, and it's, it's that whenever we're working to achieve a, a behavioral change and have it last, my experience is we often jump to, what do I have to do? Like, what's the, what are the steps? What's the strategy? Something I learned from Tony Robbins that was not obvious to me, but I found supremely useful. And I wonder if maybe you've seen it or have different words or you know, another view on it, is what he'll talk about is he talks about where most of us go first to this strategy that if we instead go what might be considered upstream, both to stories, what are the narratives that I'm living about whatever life is worthless or life is a gift or this relationship doesn't work or this relationship is a blessing or whatever, where I think most of us don't live with an awareness that those are at some level a story that we're telling ourselves. So Tony invites us to look at that and then upstream from that even where he talks about state, what's your emotion and to consciously cultivate an empowering state through what you're saying, moving your body, your breath, how much sleep you get, like all this, and the way you're putting your awareness, what language you're using, all that. So anyway, I'm not trying to make this a lecture about Tony Robbins' model, but I've seen that is so 
empowering in my own life. And I forget, and then I remember, and I forget, and I remember. But what have you seen when it comes to lasting, creating and sustaining behavioral change? And particularly, perhaps, as it relates to the narratives we, we live and the states that we do or don't live in. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let me put a bit of, you know, uh, speaking a little bit of academic language about, <laughs> okay. uh, about what um, Anthony Robbins does. And, you know, I'm obviously familiar with, with his work. So in psychology, there is talk of the, the ABC of psychology. The A stands for affect. Affect is emotion. The B stands for behavior. Behavior is about the action that we take. And the C stands for cognition. Cognition are our thoughts. So the ABC, affect, behavior, and cognition. When we're thinking about bringing about change, then we can bring about change through one of the three one of the three elements. We can bring about change through having a very strong emotion. And you know, earlier we talked about how a trauma can affect change. Emotion can, can lead to emotion. But it doesn't have to be traumatic. It can just be real strong excitement about uh, achieving something. You know, I really, you know, I'm so excited about it and I do it because I'm excited. So that's the, the emotion. Or, uh, you know, when, when I meditate, then I'm experiencing calm. Calm is a, a, a healthy emotion from where I can bring about change. So that's the A. The B is behavior. I can do something about it. You know, in terms of behavior, I can also uh, take action towards the desired end. And that action can inspire me, i.e. create inspiration, i.e. create an emotion. And that action can also lead to insights. And here is when I get to cognition. Cognition is about, our, is about the stories we tell ourselves. And if the story I tell myself is, you know, I, and by the way, this can be conscious or, or, or subconscious. The story I tell myself is I can't do well or I can't uh, enjoy good relationships or I'm, a, um, I'm not good at math or whatever the story is. These stories affect us. Now, ideally, if you want to bring about change, because change is so difficult to bring about, you want to focus on A, B, and C. In other words, you do want to create inspiration. You do want to create excitement about what you want to achieve. You want to find a goal, an objective that, that moves you. Again, emotion, motion that moves you. At the same time, you want to take action. You don't want to wait too long. You want to take action in the direction uh, that you want to get to, even if you don't feel like it. And you know, I'll give you a personal example. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm very excited and very motivated to write. You know, this is, this and teaching, these are my two professional passions. And yet not every morning that I wake up, do I feel like writing. There are some mornings where I just want to stay in bed or where I would much rather, you know, surf the web and, and look, you know, go on YouTube and look at video after video after video. And again, I'm not negating that as, as, as valuable. It could be valuable, but not in the mornings when I should be writing as, as, as I see it. So behavior then is, is even more important than emotions. That's the B of change. And then cognition. We constantly need to think about the stories we tell ourselves because very often stories are what holds us back. Uh, this is why journaling is so valuable, is so important, because through journaling, we often come up with insights. And by the way, these cognitive shifts that we create through journaling can really excite us, i.e. affect the A, emo the affect, emotion and also then lead to behavior, to action. 
So the ABC, as much as possible, need to work in, in tandem together. Uh, that's, that's beautiful. And, and I can see a way, this is maybe a little poetic, but a way in which those weave or braid together, they all affect one another and you know, so forth. And to have that, again, that awareness and, and to be able to, at some level, make a choice you know, to not surf the web and get into action and recognize that's going to impact the emotion and you can change what you're thinking about. It's in a way, if I can find myself, especially someone like me who maybe overthinks certain things <laughs> could get inside that, but it's, it's endlessly fascinating, I think. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that. And, and, and if I can say just, Brian, one more thing about taking action and, and, and its importance. You know, there, the majority of people around the world are self-proclaimed procrastinators the overwhelming majority of writers are self-proclaimed procrastinators. And, you know, what is the best way to deal with procrastination? It's understanding the following truth, and that is that perspiration often precedes inspiration, that action often precedes inspiration. So what the pro- in the procrastinator's mind, the idea is I need to be inspired to write or I need to need to be inspired to get this job done. But they don't feel inspired. So they wait and they wait and they wait and then it lasts a minute and they don't have a choice and they do it with all the stress involved because they believe that inspiration should precede action. Whereas the people who most effectively deal with procrastination are the people who understand that action or perspiration precedes inspiration. They just do it. They act. Very often I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like writing, but it doesn't matter because I just do it. It's a ritual. It's a habit. And then I get into it almost inevitably, whether it's five minutes or an hour, I get into it and I feel inspired doing what I care about so much. Yeah, I I love that. And, And thank you for sharing that. You know, that reminds me, someone once pointed out to me that, like you're saying, many people say, I'll do it when I feel like it. But Mm -hmm. if we flip that and say, I'll feel like it when I do it. Good. That's often our experience. And I I think about, you know, I read something a writer had written about his experience writing this uh, science fiction author, Frank Herbert. And I don't have the passage committed to memory exactly, but the gist of what he said was, you know, sometimes I wrote because I felt inspired and other times I wrote even though I didn't. And when I look back on all my writing, I can't tell which is which. Mm. I was like, that's really interesting. That's great. Yeah. Now, that, that's very valuable. Thank you for, for sharing that perspective. Well, with your permission, I want to transition our conversation now to the Enlightening Lightning Round. I'm ready to go. Okay. Fantastic. So, again, this is intended to be a series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you'd like. My endeav- I endeavor to ask the question and step aside for the most part. All right. Number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a roller coaster. Number two, what important truth do you believe that very few people agree with you on? That an important element of happiness is lowering our expectations of happiness. Okay. Number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Give yourself the permission to be human. Beautiful. Number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Two books. 
Passionate Marriage by David Schnarch, which I think is the best book on relationships, and The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon, which is really the book that got me interested in the whole area of self-help. Well, thank you for sharing that. Did you ever have the chance to meet Mr. Brandon? I met Nathaniel Brandon on, on a few occasions, and, and after reading his book, and he became my mentor. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I have his book. That the book you mentioned, I haven't read it, but I, I perked up when I saw it in your and quoted a couple passages in your book. The one I want to ask you just for a moment about about passionate marriage. This is not one I'm familiar with. Yeah. So David Schnarch is a psychologist. His his expertise is relationships. And his book, Passionate Marriage, and I also got to meet him after reading his book. His book really transformed our relationship as, as it has uh, done for, for many couples around the world. A very important book that doesn't give an easy solution, but uh, shows you the way if you're prepared to work hard and put effort, time and effort into your relationship. Wow, sounds amazing. Thank you for sharing. Okay, number five. So you travel and have traveled a lot. What is one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? My Kindle. I read and it also helps me. So, so I'm, I'm often uh, jet lagged when I travel across time zones. It helps me uh, feel like I'm not struggling to fall asleep, you know, so I go to bed and I read and I can read for a few hours and then fall asleep a little bit and then read again. So having a book with me always precious. Yeah. yeah. And how does reading for you, what's your preference, Kindle versus paper? Do you, do you have one? Yeah, I, I do prefer paper. However, uh, I would be overweight every time I fly if I <laughs> the books that I may want to read while on the yeah. trip. Yeah, it's not the most convenient thing to carry around. Okay, what about, and before we leave this topic of travel, is there anything you do either when you prepare or you make your arrangements? Any, I know some people will, I never thought to do this until I heard it. They'll request certain floors in hotels away from elevators or certain seats on planes or you know things they do when booking. Is there anything you do like that as you get ready or maybe as you come home from a, a journey? No, what I, what I do emphasize, fortunately, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good sleeper, so I sleep on planes as well. But what I, what I do emphasize is going out of my way to eat healthfully, meaning not to uh, um, be too demanding on my body. So I don't eat that much, uh, even though when we're jet lagged, we're inclined to eat more than we usually do. Uh, when we're up for many hours, I eat healthfully, I eat in moderation. And when I can, I, I sleep. And another thing, also, I exercise. I do not neglect my exercise regime. So, so I really focus on, on treating my body with respect always, but especially when I travel, because traveling and not sleeping as much, you know, exacts a price from uh, one's body and mind. So I try to mitigate that with uh, extra health, uh, healthy behaviors in the other areas where I do have control. Because I don't, you know, I, I was in Japan just the last month had an amazing time, but I worked during the night, meaning during the night for me in, uh, in, in New York, uh, which was very, was, was, is obviously hard. And during the day, I didn't really fall asleep when it was night there. But what I did have control over is whether or not I exercise and how well or poorly I eat. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. 
Okay, question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Hmm. So one thing that uh, started that that that's an easy one. I started playing ping pong, table tennis. This is my new passion. You know, so I can't play squash anymore. Really, I mean, I can, but but as soon as I get on court, you know, my memory is still of a twenty-one year old <laughs> yeah. around for for two hours playing a match. Can't do that anymore. But table tennis, ping pong, you know, I can play and and learn and 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 enjoy tremendously. So you know, I'm never going to be a, a high level player, but I, I certainly am enjoying it so much. And, and the nice thing is that, you know, in my club, I see players who are, uh, you know, you know, young and strong and are amazing. And, and I see players who are old and strong and are amazing. You know, we have a player who is you know, in his uh, late 70s or early 80s. I mean, he kicks my butt, but and, and he's, you know, exercising and practicing. So I'm hoping that this is my, my, my sport. So <laughs> That's table awesome. tennis, this is a shout out for that great sport. I'll bet you are a formidable table tennis player. Mm, well, I don't know. Tell this to my coach who <laughs> not that happy with me. But uh, <laughs> well, anyone who has a coach for table tennis, man, yeah, that's, yeah, that's awesome. That's fun. Thanks for sharing that. Now, one thing which I stopped, uh-huh. you know, I, it also has to do with, with exercise. I had a, a much more rigorous exercise regime where I would push myself, you know, to my limits, because that's the modus operandi that I was, you know, used for, uh, used to from my, my, my squash days, my professional days. And, you know, I felt like, you know, I need to uh, slow, slow down. So I do exercise regularly, religiously, but not at the same pace. Yeah. I did stop eating gluten and I felt that that made a big difference in my life. Now I know that I'm not celiac. I don't, I didn't need to do it, but I actually feel a lot better without it. You know, I hear that and my wife doesn't eat gluten. She's not fastidious and not celiac either, but she says she feels better. I'm, I feel fortunate that I'm pretty robust. I feel like I've kind of got an iron gut, <laughs> but nevertheless, I wonder if I might feel better as well because I've read about the connection between inflammation and gluten and exactly. I've heard it's just amazing. Exactly. So I actually literally feel the difference in my, it's not in my bones, but it's somewhere deep inside where my body's more inflamed when I eat gluten. Now, not everyone feels that of course, uh, but, I, but I bet you many people who are not celiac would have the same experience. Yeah, that's, that's one of those that I am fascinated by. And especially when I hear people say, well, I go to Europe and I can eat all the bread and I'm fine, but I come here and I don't know if it's GMOs or, you know, something else, but man, yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Worth exploring. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? The importance, the radical importance of face-to-face relationships, interactions. You know, in America, two things are happening, two trends, unhealthy trends are happening. One is that people are spending more and more time working as opposed to being with their loved ones. And the second one is that more and more people are spending uh, online rather than face-to-face. And the the net-net of that is unhappiness levels going up. Number one predictor of, of happiness, as I mentioned earlier, relationships. And that means specifically quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us and not virtual relationships, real relationships, face-to-face interactions. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Okay. Number eight, speaking of relationships, this is the sequence of the, the question set. What is 
the most important or useful relationship advice you have ever learned and successfully applied? Spending quality time and mindful, which means mindful time. So for instance, you know, you see many, uh, and you know, I'll give an example with my kids, but this applies to any relationship. You see so many parents who are with their kids and at the same time are on the phone or, you know, texting or emailing or, or doing something, but they feel good because, you know, they're, they're at home and, you know, around their kids. No, switch off, disconnect in order to connect, disconnect from technology in order to connect with people. And again, this applies to parenting. It applies to uh, romantic partners who are uh, at dinner together or time with your friends. Disconnect, get off technology, you know, go, go traditional, go old fashioned. Number one predictor of happiness. Oh, I, love, I love that. The disconnect in order to connect. That's a great way to, to say that. Okay. And number nine, Aside from compound interest, what's the most important lesson you've ever learned about money or what's something you're sure to always or never do with it? Mm. So, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we need a certain amount for our basic needs, and here I mean basic needs, most important thing is to do something that you're passionate about so that money becomes a byproduct of your passion, of, 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 of something purposeful that you're, that you're doing. And that something purposeful may be starting your business and ultimately making uh, you know, millions of dollars and becoming wealthy or being a professor in the humanities or a school teacher who doesn't make that much money, but doing what you're passionate about. So in, in my book, Happier, that you refer to, I talk about happiness being the ultimate currency the currency by which we, we ought to take measure of our lives. Now, of course, getting our basic needs met, and uh, we need uh, money for that, you know, you do whatever you need to do in order to get that. Uh, but beyond our very basic needs, pursue your passions. Thank you for sharing that. That's, I, I wholeheartedly subscribe to that. And at the same time, you know, I hear how, maybe this is my position specific, I realize I'm very blessed when it comes to money. And I think when I relay that message, people often say, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, but now I can quote you. <laughs> so. uh, feel free to quote me and you can also quote research. Yeah. Because what the research shows is that people whose primary goal is uh, making money or becoming rich, these people tend to be less happy. In contrast, people who pursue their passions and do what they truly genuinely care about are more likely to be happy. And again, the caveat here is you don't tell this you know, to a person who's struggling to make ends meet. You know, that person will work hard wherever they need to work hard, passion or not, to get food on the table. And, and that's right. You know, that's, that's you know, the basic need. You know, that's the hierarchy of needs. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So congratulations. You have with, we have one last question in the enlightening lightning round. And with that, you have successfully navigated. I, I passed the test. Yeah. So the, the last question here is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you. And by the way, I know that you have the happiness studies Academy, which is pretty awesome that people can now earn a certificate in happiness studies. Right. So anyway, I'm kind of, throwing that out there, maybe getting a little ahead of myself, but if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my website is uh, talbenshahar.com. That's one word. There are links to the Happiness Studies Academy for uh, 
people who want to get a certificate in happiness studies, which is you know the project that I'm very excited about. Uh, another project that I'm very excited about is uh, a potential life, which is more for leadership development for organizations. And of course, it has links to my books as well as uh, my, my email. If people want to get in touch with me, oh, I always respond. Not always immediately because I do not check my email every day, but I always respond. Yeah, oh, good. great. Thank you for sharing that. And the last thing that I just want to say here before we explore just a few questions related to the creative process and, and writing, maybe one or two about marketing and promotion, is I do want to say that as a gesture of gratitude, one of the things I have done is I have gone on kiva.org and I have made a $100 microloan to a woman in India, 41-year-old named Lakshmiben, who will use this money to purchase buffaloes in order to expand her dairy business. She currently has five members in her household, and that household has an income of about 250 US dollars a month. So hopefully this will help her to make a difference for herself, her family, and her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to go make that microloan. Thank you. Okay, so with that, the final part of the conversation, again, about writing creativity, as I prepared for this, really, the, there were the two things, there's three things that I'd love to ask, and one about marketing or promotion, and then invite you to say whatever you want to say, but I know that's a lot to try to pack in six minutes. So let me just ask this, you know that who I'm endeavoring to reach and serve through this conversation is achievers and seekers who want to use their time, talent, and energy in service to others. They want to do exactly what we've talked about, enjoy what they do find meaning and pleasure in it. And particularly anybody who's listening this far in the interview wants to also write or maybe speak from a stage, put their ideas down on paper. What do you say to somebody that might be useful to them? Either what you've learned in the research or from your own experience. I know that's a very broad thing. I threw away my question set for this section of the interview like two months ago. So what, what's useful in your view for somebody in that position? Somebody in that position of, of, of being a, uh, wanting to be a writer, uh, publish their works. I go back to, to something that we spoke about, that perspiration precedes inspiration. Specifically, just do it. You know, I was actually just this morning, I had a meeting with my publisher about our next book together. And uh, we, were, we were talking about writing habits. You know, I, I, and I, I said to her, my, my editor said to her, you know, all my friends who are writers and who are prolific writers have one thing in common, and that is that there is a specific hour every day where they write. Most of them, by the way, in the mornings, but not only. So they put, whether it's one hour, whether it's three hours, they put aside to write almost no matter what. As, as a ritual. So before, you know, if there are professors, they, they, you know, they teach and their class maybe starts at 10. So between uh, 8 a.m. Or, or 6 a.m. And, and 9 a.m., they're in front of their computer screen writing. And some days they write five pages in uh, three hours and some days they, they delete five pages in three hours. It doesn't matter, but, but they write regularly. Uh, there's no substitute for that. The second thing is, you know, the best writers are also the best readers. So read, read, and read. You know, read uh, high art and read newspapers. Read more high art than newspapers, uh, but read. And, and what happens when, we, when, when writers become readers is that you, um, you know, it's like, you know, I go back to my, you know, everything I needed to learn, I learned on the squash court. When I would watch other players play, I would pick up 
their 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 movements, their mannerism. I would pick up their their habits, and then I would make it my own. Same with with other authors. You know, I read. Uh, you know, my favorite author is George Eliot, uh, A.K.A. Marianne Evans. And you know, when I read her, I take on her 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 pace and you know use some of her words sometimes or you know if i read another another favorite author of mine is f scott scott fitzgerald so you know so reading flappers and philosophers you know it helps me get into you know his rhythm his dialogues and 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 so on so read read and read and then write write and write so wait a minute you're saying a writer's got to write <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. And, and the thing is, you know, I, I've met so many wannabe writers who, who who simply don't write. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, of, of this of this joke where um where there is this guy who who really um who's who's the true believer, you know, you know, believes in, in, in God and, and and prays every day. And then one day realize, you know, he, he's very poor and he says, you know, I wanna I wanna I wanna make it big. I wanna I wanna have a comfortable life here on earth, not just in uh, in the in the afterlife, and he said, and he prays and continues to praise and says uh, to God and God, please, I want to win the lottery. And he prays, you know, for days and then weeks and years and years. Please, God, and you know, he means it from the bottom of his heart. Please let me win the lottery. I'm a good man. I do everything that you've ever asked uh, a man to do. And finally, you know, he you know he gets to a grand old age uh, and he dies and he dies poor. And he goes to heaven and he gets an audience with the Almighty and he stands in front of God and he says, you know, God, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to be here and thank you for admitting me into your, you know, your, your, your home. But God, I have a question. And God says, uh, yes, my son. And he says, you know, God, you know, I prayed so hard with such intention and, you know, I was such, I was a good man and, and, you know, I prayed that I could win the lottery. You know, why didn't I win it? Uh, God, why didn't you grant me my wish? And then God responds, you know, I so much wanted to grant you your wish, but why didn't you buy a ticket? So, <laughs> you know, so it's the same thing. You know, a writer, you want to be a great writer, it's not enough to have the intention to write. You need to write. Yeah, I, I love that. A guest just recently, he, he had a friend who was a filmmaker and he shared, people would ask his friend, if I want to make films, what should I do? His friend said, buy a camera. <laughs> exactly. By the uh, I love that. Well, that's beautiful. Well, I want to transition. Well, this one is practical and tactical, I think, that might serve people listening, which is in your book, you use what I think, what I found to be so many great quotes, quotations, and of course, um, research sources. And that's, I think, a real skill to be able to, you know, first of all, find it, use it, you know. And so the question where I'm headed with this is, do you have a process? And if so, what is it like to be able to organize that so that you can weave it together and put it in a way that's coherent and useful and all of that? And if what is that like? Yeah, so I, I do have a process which is partially, was partially intuitive and partially, and this part is the, the, the greater part, based on research. And the, and the process is begin with a mess, meaning uh, begin by venturing wide, you know, diverge. And that means uh, read. So for example, you know, let's say I'm writing a book on spirituality or uh, then what I, or, or on meditation. What I would do is I would read everything that I can get my hand on. 
in, in that topic of spirituality or meditation. And I would read and I would take notes as I'm reading, you know, I'd have a file with notes and it's a mess because I'm learning about research and I'm learning about, you know, ancient philosophy and, you know, I'm reading uh, the Buddha I'm reading, I'm reading John Kabat-Zinn and, 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 and then after reading a lot and feeling like I'm um, becoming quite well versed in, in that area, uh, not perfectly well versed, but quite well versed in that area, I put it all down. And uh, after I put it all down, you know, I give it a few days and sometimes it's a few weeks when uh, I don't go into it unless I moved to go into it. And when I move, then I sit down and, and write. And inevitably, it has always happened to me, regardless of the topic that I was researching, studying, writing a book about, teaching a class about, suddenly I get more clarity. Things come together, things fall into place. And, and I say, and it's inevitable that it happens. If one is willing to put in the hours first, putting the hours into getting to know, getting intimate with the topic, and second, putting it on the back burner for a while. Both, interesting. Are, are both elements are important because one of the things that people do is they say, you know, you know I want to read this book and then write about it. Well, you're not an expert in it. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't uh, be writing about it. You know, it's like saying, you know, I want to, I want to become a pianist but I want to go straight to, you know, to playing a, you know, a, a Mozart sonata. You know, wait, you know, you, you know, progress, you know, learn your scales first, learn your ABCs, literally, and then, um, and then progress on and on. So you need the, the, the background first, but then you also need time away from it because it's in the time away from it, that's when the creative spark ignites. Yeah, uh, and and interesting. inevitably, because that is how nature uh, takes its course. This is like night follows day. Meaning, you know, think about a child learning a language. So initially, a child is exposed to a lot of stimulation from the outside world. And a child sees one object and another object and a similar object and has no idea what that object is, but, but sees enough of these objects. And then suddenly, um, there is the aha moment. Oh, it's a chair. And from that moment on, they understand what chairs are. Um, or it's a horse after they have seen many horses or in, you know, enough horses. So they have enough particulars to create a concept. And in the same way, when you read about a, a topic, you have enough particulars from that topic that you're able to generalize to a concept. And this is what books are, you know, you know, so I generalize in my happiness book to a happiness model, future benefit and present benefit. And, and, and these insights Again, whether we're talking about, you know, Einstein's insight in the, in the theory of relativity or much lesser insights such as happiness is about present and future benefit, they very often come after a lot of learning. Yeah, again, it's one of these that, that it, it sounds simple and maybe it is if one is willing to do it, right? And I think I suspect if many people listening are like me in this regard that sometimes there is this creative muddle that's wound up with self-doubt and you know maybe a lack of clarity of who do we really want to write for and how would we like to serve them and you know all of this and yet when you break it down like you did about go broad you know allow yourself to learn as much as you can about a topic make notes as you go put it down at some point back away get some perspective come back put then put in the time to synthesize or organize or draft or whatever that i mean it seems yeah i, I I love, I love that. Yeah, and, and, it's, and again, it's simple to, to understand, obviously, um, more challenging to, to implement. Yeah, but that's how you do it. I mean, you're very prolific. I know some people 
more bloggers probably than than straight book authors. And I know you write all kinds of things, courses and papers and things like that. But some people I talk with, they have a sense of how many words they've written in their life. Do you have any, have you ever tried to quantify it? I haven't, no, but I, I, I do write a lot. Yeah, you're pr pretty prolific. Cool. That's, that's wonderful. And now I just, I just want to ask a little bit about marketing and promotion because, again, talking about finish lines and starting lines, I, my experience in talking with writers is they often see the completion of the manuscript or the publication of the book as the finish line, where I think there's often a disillusionment that, okay, it's on Amazon or it's maybe even in a bookstore, but if people don't know about it or care about it, that's, then they're not as fulfilled as they hoped they would be when they knew they wanted to make this contribution. What have you found when it comes to telling people about the work you're doing that has been effective in getting them enrolled, having them buy the book or sign up for the course or show up in a classroom? Yeah, you know, the um, marketing of books or in general obviously has changed in this new world. So, you know, my the book Happier became a bestseller because John Stewart had me, I was going to say, had me on his show. He also had me for lunch uh, on his show. So, um, you know, that, that made the book an, an, an instant bestseller. But today, less common. Yes, you know, if you're fortunate, you'll be on a, on a show that people watch. But other than that, the best way to, to sell books is to teach the books. So whether it's in uh, book signings where you're teaching from the book, of course, or whether it's, uh, you know, you may be teaching a course about your uh, book, giving lectures about it, the, mo the best-selling authors today uh, certainly in my field of, again, self-help broadly defined, are also lecturers. They're out there talking about their writing. Yeah, that's not, not surprising. And especially, I, I, you, I suspect you've observed this as well, when you're someone who's, who's written a book and you have a message that really does make a difference for people, when you speak to them, especially if you speak to them or you have the chance to teach them, that they just want to take a piece of you home with them. They'll buy the book for that reason. Yeah. And again, you know, most people who write book are, are, are passionate about what they write about. And, 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 you know, passion is contagious. So if you're passionate about uh, what you wrote about, it's very likely that others who hear you talk about it become passionate about it. If there's a final piece of wisdom or encouragement that you would leave listeners with. Mm. Yes. And that is that there are no shortcuts. I must say that when I, when, I, when I started off in this field, I was hoping that I would, I, would, I would see the light. I would find the holy grail. I would find that one thing that I would need to do, and, and then I would live happily ever after. I have not found that thing. I don't think that thing exists. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes time. Now, work, effort, and time, that does not equate to pain and suffering. The work, effort, and time can in and of themselves be part of an overall happy experience, overall happy life. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. And I will thank you, Tal, for being here and sharing. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you for doing the work that you do and, and, and spreading well-being, happiness, and wisdom. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. For tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope you pick up Tal's book, Happier, if you don't own it already. Check out Tal's Happiness Studies Academy. And with that, I will wish you well and look forward to talking to you again next time. Until then. 
Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.